Okay, well, uh, a very good evening to you all. Welcome to one and all. If you're normally at the LSE, good to see you. And if you're not, it's also good to see you. Uh, I'm Tony Travers from the School of Public Policy and the Department of Government here at the LSE. And the hashtag for this event, as you can see, is hashtag LSE Brexit. Um, but tonight's event is a little bit different. We've had a large number of events uh, about and concerning Brexit in the now increasingly long period since June 2016. It seems rather longer even than it is. Uh, but what we've not done so far is to have events with um, representatives of countries who are obviously with long-term links and friendships with the United Kingdom and who are in a great position in some ways to understand Brexit as it feels from way outside the EU 28, as it still is, and who can give us their counsel about what they have learned and what their nations and governments have learned um, in the nearly three years since the referendum took place. And so that's the purpose of the event with the title Brexit with a little help from our friends. And I'm very briefly going to introduce the speakers in the order uh, in which they are going to speak, and each will then talk for about eight minutes, give their own reflections, and then I will ask them one or two follow-up questions, and then we'll open it out to the audience, so you'll get the chance then to make points, short I hope, ask questions politely, the usual kind of thing. So, and we'll, we'll finish by 8 p.m. So uh, we're going to hear from Sir Jerry... Mataparai, who is the New Zealand High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. Prior to his disappointment, he served as New Zealand's Governor General, so the Queen's representative, head of state in New Zealand, and previously had worked at senior levels in New Zealand public service and military, and was indeed, uh, and he enlisted into the regular force of the New Zealand Army as a soldier at the beginning of his career. Uh, we'll then hear from Janice Charette, who is the Canadian High Commissioner to the UK, a job she's held since September 2016. And prior to this, Ms. Charette served as Clerk to the Privy Council and Secretary to the Cabinet in Ottawa, and uh, has also um, had a role as Deputy Clerk to the Privy Council and Associate Secretary to the Cabinet, as well as Deputy Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs. Uh, third, Fu Chi Xia, who has been Singapore's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom since September 2014 and is concurrently accredited to Iceland and Ireland. So um, that's a wide role indeed. You'll be hoping the flights continue, I'm sure, uh, after the 29th of March. Uh, Ms. Fu joined the um, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1994 and a prior overseas posting was at as the Singapore's permanent mission to the United Nations in New York, and uh, previously, uh, in, sorry, including being political coordinator during Singapore's term as a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council. And then last but by no means least is George Brandis, who's the Australian High Commissioner of the United Kingdom, our dear neighbours over the road. Uh, Mr Brandis has had a distinguished political career in Australia as a member of the federal parliament, Appointments have included Attorney General, Vice, Pres Vice President of the Executive Council, Leader of the Government in the Senate, Federal Minister for the Arts, and Deputy Leader of the Government in the Senate. So a wide range of expertise from our friends. So what I'd like to do is, just before I actually say a couple of words before I invite Sir Jerry to start us off with my own 
brief reflections as I'm sort of preparing for this evening. So just uh, bear with me for a second here. So, as I say, the title of the evening's event refers to the historic links between the United Kingdom and a number of nations, four nations, which have in the past been members of the Empire, the Dominions, and of course, most recently, active members of the Commonwealth. Now, there are a whole range of links, including commerce, sport, military, and others that have linked these countries for a very long time. But I think it's fair to say, and those of you with long memories will remember, and I do, that EU accession caused angst, a certain amount of damage to trading relations, and created distance, not physical distance, but distance perhaps between nations that had been very close in the past. Now, of course, paradoxically, the United Kingdom will be seeking to re-establish trade links and do trade deals, uh, and indeed, avowedly, to strengthen, re-strengthen Commonwealth ties. Now, um, I looked up a parliamentary debate uh, in preparation for this, um, a parliamentary debate in 1962. This was at the point when there was already some debate about the UK joining the EEC, as it then was. And on the debate on the 3rd of August 1962, Parliament sat later in the summer in those days, Mr Clark Hutchinson said in a debate, I remind the House that our trade with the Commonwealth far exceeds in value and quantity our trade with the six, that's the six members of the EEC. This, of course, is largely due to our having preferential treatment arrangements. The potential of the Commonwealth is enormous, 600 million people and untold mineral resources. Parts of Australia, a country I know, and of Canada, are still unexplored, the MP, British MP said. We do not know what may be there but we have preferal, preferential, preferential arrangements with these lands. Now, the reason I you know, looked, took that for this evening is that uh, this was, of course, the beginning or part of a major uh, uh, sort of effort within British politics to ensure that ties with the Commonwealth remained strong, and indeed this particular MP didn't want to join the EEC at all. So... Just to conclude, I think each of the countries here represented are very close and indeed sympathetic to the UK, but like critical friends, are able to say things, and I'm sure will say things, that tell those of us resident in the UK what their countries, their governments, their people think about the remarkable process of Brexit. So tonight gives us a great opportunity to explore. And I'll ask Sir Jerry if he would like to uh, speak either from there or from here, wherever you feel most comfortable. Yeah. <coughs> uh, thank you, Tony. Um, and thanks to the LSC for having me here this evening. Uh, and also thanks to my fellow panellists for what I'm sure is going to be an interesting evening. Now to the topic Brexit with a little help from our friends. And continuing with the Beatles music themed topic. <laughs> Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song and I'll try not to sing out of key. <laughs> well, maybe not a song and maybe I will be out of key, uh, but first, a bit of musing. It's interesting that the question that was posed to we panellists is about impact. Naturally, that invites a negative sentiment. But while Brexit may pose some short-term risks for New Zealand... There are also some significant opportunities, and not just in the trade space. Before we look ahead uh, to what we might 
get from Brexit. I think it's important to recognise where we are in our bilateral relationship now because we all get by with a little help from our friends. For New Zealand, our friendship with the UK has at its core people-to-people -people connections. Four in five New Zealanders claim a British heritage. We have a unique relationship with the United Kingdom. The Treaty of Waitangi, considered the foundational uh, founding document for modern New Zealand, was signed by over 500 Māori chiefs, including 13 women, and representatives of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. We've served alongside each other through two world wars, and we are currently serving alongside each other today. It's also a relationship steeped in tradition. Our political and legal systems derive from here. We have an apolitical public service. We have deep personal connections built through the overseas experience, through sport and through arts and culture. But the thing that underpins our friendship is values. New Zealand's values, which are rooted in fairness and a reputation for domestic stability, cultural respect and constructive pragmatism, lie at the heart of how we engage, our soft power, if you will, and our diplomacy. That's also true of the UK. There are few brands as powerful, few countries which have a voice which is amplified so widely as the United Kingdom. Brexit might change that, but I don't think it will diminish it. These links are special and they shouldn't be underestimated. The benefit for both the UK and New Zealand is immense. They help us to learn, they help us to innovate, they help us to succeed, and I think they help us make the world a better place. But as the world around us is changing, and evolving, so must our friendship. While here in London, it's easy to think that Brexit is the only game in town. However, we need to remember that the world around us is also shifting too. Things that we've taken for granted aren't there in the same way that they have been previously. So a friendship that is based on heritage and principles feels as necessary now as they have been before. For New Zealand, the UK is a country that we share common commitments with democracy, human dignity, protection of the rules-based international system, a commitment to free trade and preservation of peace and security. It might also sound trite, but we really do see the UK as a natural partner. That's not to say that this next stage will be without its challenges. New Zealand is firm that we will not accept being left worse off as a result of the UK's decision to leave the United or the European Union. But there are also opportunities. We need to keep working together to find ways to cut through the, a global environment which, is, which it's fair to say is chaotic. I'd say thank you again for, to the UK for being a friend. We've been very pleased to see the UK's interest in our region, the South Pacific, and we look forward to the UK co-locating with us in some of its new diplomatic posts there. We want to do more on the issues of today. Climate change is one, perhaps the greatest challenge of our time, and one that is affecting our region. Together with the UK, we're tackling the goal of achieving a zero-carbon economy, something else which all of us need to do more about. 
We want to do more about facilitating the exchange of people between our two countries. And recent signals from the UK in this area are very welcome. But we can do more in ensuring that tourists, that workers and that students continue to move between our two countries and get the benefit of that overseas experience. And of course there are our trade and economic and business links. Perhaps some of you would have ex expected me to start at that end and to have hammered home all the reasons why New Zealand and the UK could set a gold standard free trade agreement. It is true that a modern high quality free trade agreement between New Zealand and the United Kingdom would help unlock the potential of what is already a strong trade and economic relationship. The key thing is that whatever piece of paper we negotiate, it has to be one that works for business and for people. After all, the reason we negotiate FTAs is to stimulate economic growth, to create jobs and to ensure that the benefits of this growth are felt throughout society. It's also important to remember that sometimes you shouldn't have one best friend, but many close ones. While important, bilateral trade agreements are not the only way we can ach achieve trade liberalisation. And New Zealand welcomes the UK's interest in joining the CPTPP. Multilateral, plurilateral agreements are increasingly the game in town. And the Asia-Pacific region is perhaps the most dynamic on the globe. And we've found that it's always good to have a diverse group of friends who bring different perspectives and think differently about issues. And Tony alluded to them, because it would be remiss of us to not think about the Commonwealth and how that forum could be used to achieve or to advance economic growth. While the Commonwealth is not a traditional trade policy forum, it has currently 53 members who account for over 30% of the world's population and with an estimated GDP <coughs> of 10 billion US, US dollars, 10 trillion US dollars. It is a group with significant trade potential. And New Zealand is working to advance further economic and trade integration within the Commonwealth. And if we think bigger, again, there's also the WTO. Now, I'm not going to pretend that the WTO doesn't have challenges, but is the grouping that at the forefront of preserving the growing trade liberalisation agenda and ensuring that those rules which have been and are being so carefully negotiated are enforced? An independent UK voice in the WTO will be an important voice for trade liberalisation. Perhaps for some of you in the audience familiar with the TV sitcom Friends will relate to its theme song that goes, no one told you life was going to be this way. And it's important to remember that the world has been shaken up before and that it will be shaken up again. What is important is that like-minded partners like those of us here today work to preserve the rules-based international order, which is in all of our interests. Mark Twain said that there is no sadder sight than a young pessimist except an old optimist. I'm <laughs> proud to put myself in the latter camp. From a New Zealand perspective, there is much to be preferred about the world today than the world of the 1970s. For a start, the Rugby World Cup, the William Webb Ellis Trophy exists and it sits in its rightful place. <laughs> 
but also geographies on our side. The most rapid middle-class expansion in economic history is occurring in our hemisphere. The global middle class now outnumbers those classified as vulnerable or poor. The demand for higher quality goods and services will be an important opportunity for all of us here today. Turning back to the question posed at the start, how might Brexit impact our bilateral ties? One point that I do want to make is that it's not a zero-sum game. It's not a matter of picking this or that friend. It's a question of looking across the board and across to partners and thinking about how we take that friendship to the next level. To do that, we need connections, we need architecture, we need a narrative. In that respect, when I think about Brexit and how it might impact on our friendship with the UK, I don't just think about it through a New Zealand-UK lens. I think about the countries my three fellow High Commissioners represent and how the re friendship and relationship we all hold and that fr friendship with the UK and, of course, other partners across the globe and how we can collectively ensure the institutions and the values which we hold dear as are sustained in this changing global context. Now, ain't it good to know that you've got a friend? And judging from those sitting here with me tonight, more than one. What I really want to leave you with, though, today is a sense that our friendship, that is between the New Zealand and the United Kingdom, has always been a strong and, uh, and vibrant one. That isn't going to change. The UK is a pragmatic country, we see. It's a country which has navigated choppy waters before. It's a country that will do so again. In a time of global uncertainty, now is the time for like-minded partners to grow their relationship. Uh, and just before I do, in, in terms of... No, I won't, I won't say that, because we're on the record. Thank you. <laughs> OK, from a sedentary position, as the Speaker of the House of Commons would say, um, I now invite uh, the Canadian High Commissioner Janice Charette to give us her eight minutes. Thank you. I don't think I'm quite as tall as Jerry, actually. Bon après-midi à vous tous. Good afternoon, early evening, everybody. Uh, Bonasera, I guess. Uh, for those of you who, uh, who don't speak one of Canada's official languages. Um, I am also very grateful for the invitation to be here as part of this illustrious panel this afternoon. And uh, uh, nothing um, makes me happier than to have my picture next to, next to something that says the London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, for those of you that are studying here, I envy you um, this opportunity uh, to be in a place of knowledge and brain candy, basically. And hopefully tonight we, uh, we will give you a little bit of uh, brain stimulation without, uh, without uh, the cavities. So um, we'll... Uh, uh, and thank you uh, also to my fellow panelists for uh, for agreeing to do this. I hopefully we'll give you a we'll give you a slightly Commonwealth-oriented vision of the response to the question about how Brexit can impact on our bilateral ties. Uh, I'm not going to sing, uh, unlike Jerry, um, and you should all be grateful for that. Um, but what I'm going to try and do is I'll start in the same place, talking about. Uh, in order to understand the impact on the relationship, what, where are we today? Then I'll talk about uh, opportunities, then I'm going to talk about risks. 
So um, like, the, like New Zealand, uh, Canada and the UK have a long and very rich history. Again, founded on people-to-people -people ties. I'll just pick Scotland as an example from our national statistics. There are as many people in Canada, almost as many people in Canada, that claim to be of Scottish origin as there are currently people living in Scotland. And so um, that maybe they wish to be Scottish. Uh, uh, I'm not sure, but it just gives you a sense, and I think the same thing would be true if we had an overall uh, UK statistic on that. We have uh, a long and proud shared history. Uh, much blood has been spilled on the battlefields of Europe, protecting the freedoms and the, uh, and the democracies we enjoy today. And we find across Commonwealth war graves here and across other battle sites the bodies of Canadian, UK, and other Commonwealth soldiers lying side by each. Uh, having made the ultimate sacrifice. Those are, those are very, very deep ties between our countries. We share a sovereign, so the reason we're high commissioners and not ambassadors, we, the Queen is, uh, is the Queen of Canada, and uh, so we, uh, and what comes from that in terms of the Westminster tradition and our common law tradition and the tradition of a nonpartisan professional public service are all things which are dear symbols and dear institutions in Canada. Um, we have, we share more or less a common language, um, and uh, although there's still some phrases that trip me up. Um, the other way that uh, we, in addition, I mean, the, the shared values point that, uh, that the New Zealand High Commissioner makes, I think, is also a really good one. Canada is, there was an article in the New York Times uh, just, uh, this, just this week actually talking about, written from the U.S. perspective about Canada, our, our northern neighbor. Um, who they very much uh, wanted to emulate, but we were really boring. And so if you look at the Canadian Constitution, you will see our institutions are framed around peace, order, and good government. Now that's a rallying cry that you can really get behind, for sure. <laughs> uh, but I think that that really does speak to, um, uh, to the values of Canadians. We are very much uh, a people committed to, uh, to fairness, to equity, to uh, mutual respect, uh, to the rule of law, and to respect for our institutions. Um, and I think that is something that we very much inherited from the, from the UK tradition. Just the last point on the nature of our economic relationship. Canada and the UK have a very vibrant trading relationship. Um, the UK is actually Canada's largest trading partner in Europe. Um, we have uh, two-way merchandise trade of about 15 and a half billion pounds or just over 26 billion Canadian dollars. And the vast majority of that transited through UK ports. You might be seeing where I'm going to be going with this. Um, and the UK is also Canada's uh, second most important destination for foreign investment abroad, second after the United States. And those trade ties, I think, are important. They were a large driver in Canada um, being motivated to uh, enter into negotiations and conclude a free trade agreement between Canada and the European Union, uh, which was uh, one of uh, a, a huge achievement, I would say, in terms of uh, a free trade agreement, which really represents the gold standard of a modern progressive agreement. Um, and uh, we are in the process of seeing that ratified across all the countries of the EU, unfortunately, now our largest trading partner is no longer going to be part of CETA, and I'll come back to that. So how, what's, what's the impact of Brexit going to be on, on this relationship? And I will start very much on the opportunity side of all of this. And I do believe that as the UK 
reimagines its future outside the European Union, that there is an opportunity for us to look again at our relationship between Canada and the United Kingdom and actually see whether we have opportunities to broaden and deepen that relationship. Because, in a way, we have such a close relationship, there's a risk that both of us have been taking it a little bit too much for granted in the past. And so do we have an opportunity now to look again at that with fresh eyes and see where there are opportunities for us to do work together? For example, in terms of the, uh, the, the global context, the geopolitical strategic context that we're operating, and there's no question that we're at a time when there are very big challenges to the rules-based international order. And the, the rules and the institutions that we have functioned on in the post-World War II, post-Bretton Woods environment are very much in question right now. And I would say that as the UK sees itself operating kind of more in the middle power space, uh, as someone has coined that term, uh, Canada and the UK, I think, because of our alignment around values, joined by other countries, such as my partners here on the stage tonight, we have an opportunity and perhaps uh, a necessity at this point in time to be speaking out as voices in defense of that global system, which is really under threat. Whether that's on the trade side in terms of the response to the rising voices of protectionism to speak out in favor of why open markets and free trade are important, not just to our prosperity, but also to our mutual security. To be able to speak out at institutions like the WTO in favor of a reform agenda that will, that will help that organization to be, as the guardian of the rule, a more effective and a more uh, 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 responsive organization. And to be also able to broaden the, the conversation around trade, to not just be what is sometimes seen as a, as a purely economic conversation about relationships between two countries or about business and investors. Ultimately, trade is about jobs and prosperity for our citizens, as well as I said, our collective security. And so how can we, in that conversation about trade, make sure that people can see that their, their own futures their, jo their jobs, the jobs of their children, uh, the goods and services they have access to at consumers, the prices that they're paying are benefiting from the impact of these, uh, of these trade deals and where there is dislocation as a result of this, that there are programs and, uh, and supports in place to help with reskilling or retraining. That's the, in, in terms of the rules-based international order, there's so many areas where Canada and the UK are already working together. We're working together right now uh, in, the, in, the in the challenge to bring democracy to Venezuela, in dealing with the plight of the Rohingya people who have been, uh, who have been moved out of, uh, out of Myanmar. Uh, in terms of the challenges in the Ukraine, and I can go on with a list of the world's hotspots where Canada and the UK find themselves very like-minded in terms of dealing with uh, those global challenges. Um, the collaboration also extends to very practical things. Um, and uh, in some parts of the world, for example, in a measure to either deal with security considerations or uh, cost considerations, uh, the UK has been very generous in hosting as a, as a co-location uh, Canadian diplomats and vice versa in some other locations. That helps us to provide services to our citizens, consular services, passport services, in a way that, uh, that I think we have a foundation that we can do more of in the future. Uh, on the trade side, I mentioned uh, the trade statistics between our countries. I think we have an opportunity to really look again at this trade relationship 
And I'll give you a comparator statistic. Every day between Canada and the United States, there's $2 billion of trade that crosses the border. $2 billion a day is what we do in 20 days. Sorry, 20 days, $2 billion a day is what we do in an entire year with the United Kingdom. We are two G7 countries. We can do better. There is more opportunity for us to deepen and broaden the trade and economic relationships between our country. And I think that uh, that's very much something that both prime ministers have indicated a commitment to and uh, both of, our, um, both of our, our governments and our private sectors, I think, are very much interested in exploring. But our economic relationship goes beyond those pure straight trade statistics. Um, as the UK is thinking about a future outside of Europe, um, we have started a very interesting conversation between Canada and the United Kingdom about collaboration around science, technology, research, and innovation, partly because of the potentially changed relationship on things like Erasmus and Horizon, but also building on that like-minded foundation between our two countries. Um, if you're looking around the world for partners in which you want to uh, uh, look at jo uh, joint areas for co-creation and co-discovery in the science field, or how you balance public policy considerations with, with innovation in the AI space, Being, having those shared set of values and that, uh, that common, uh, common foundation, I think, provides us a, a great opportunity. That's also true in how we are conquering uh, climate change and trying to deal with the challenge of the transition to a low-carbon economy, which can be not just an economic uh, challenge, but also an economic opportunity as we think about, uh, about new products, new services in this space. Um, the uh, continuity of, uh, of our relationship in the free trade area um, and in the economic area is very much uh, the focus of conversations going on right now between Canada and the United Kingdom. There is a challenge, I would say, right now because of the way the clock is working against us uh, as to whether or not we'll be able to continue with the bilateral free trade, with a bilateral free trade agreement in replacement of the Canada-EU trade agreement in time uh, for uh, the end of March. Um, if you read the Financial Times today, you'll see that there's uh, some countries where, uh, where discussions aren't as advanced as we would have liked to have been. I would say from the Canadian perspective, we think and we can be ready, and we'd very much like to be ready to be able to continue to provide that preferential access as at March 29th, and I'm hoping that we'll be in a position to do so. Let me just turn to the... Uh, I could talk about defense, security, cybersecurity, collaboration around intelligence, uh, but let me just turn in light of the time to just uh, maybe two areas of risk. One of them is, I think, the most obvious one, which is how Brexit actually happens. And so um, there is a, uh, obviously no, uh, no clarity in terms of uh, what's going to happen on March 29th, the arrangement that the UK and the European Union will come to. And I would say that uh, as a third country here, obviously we have an interest in whatever arrangement comes between, your, between uh, the UK and the EU, that at the end of it there's a strong UK, there's a strong EU, and a constructive relationship between them. I think that in a scenario where there is no deal at the end of March and the UK leaves the European Union without a deal, that will not help to achieve that outcome of a strong player on each side and a strong constructive relationship. The UK's ability to be able to realize some of the opportunities that I've talked about will be challenged in an environment of a no deal where there could be continued uncertainty, economic dislocation, and certainly distraction on the part of, uh, of UK senior uh, leaders and decision makers from being able to pursue this, this, uh, this shared agenda. 
I'd also say my second point in terms of risk is that um, as the UK uh, em em embarks on this new journey of life outside the European Union, it's really important, this is going to sound like uh, hectoring and it's not hectoring, it's really important to look at the world as it is and deal with the world as it is. Not the world that it used to be, not the world that we think we'd like to be in, but, a, but the world uh, that we're in today, a world where um, middle, uh, middle powers around the world want to be treated as equals in these conversations, that uh, this is not about a glorious past, this is not about a return to the empire. Even the conversation about the Commonwealth, I would urge that perhaps we think about the Commonwealth as a collection of many countries, each of whom have a separate and distinct identity, and we'd like to have conversations with the UK on the basis of those separate identities, not just as part of the institution of the Commonwealth. So I think that uh, in terms of how we deal with each other, um, how we have conversations with each other, how we, uh, how we make sure that uh, our agendas are shared and we're, we're collaborating around them, that I think is something that uh, we're going to have to work together on. We do have, however, one big thing in common. We both, once the UK leaves the EU, will be living next to a really big neighbor. And that big neighbor, there's a great expression in, in Canada that uh, when the U.S. gets a cold, Canada gets pneumonia. Uh, and so I think that it'll be interesting for us to share experiences of what it's like to live next to a big neighbor, to be able to coordinate, to collaborate, to have deep, respectful partnerships, but yet maintaining control and sovereignty in our own, in our own space. And so lots of food for thought in terms of opportunity for us to, uh, to be a little help to each other as friends in the future. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, uh, High Commissioner. And we'll now, uh, our third speaker is Singapore's High Commissioner, Fuchi Sia. I, I do wonder whether I should be standing here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but um, thank you very much for the invitation. And um, um, I wanted to find out, excluding the Singaporeans amongst the audience, um, how many of you have been to Singapore? Wow. I'm impressed, yeah. Um, what do you think, for those of you who are familiar with Singapore, what do you think the size of Singapore relative to, say, London? Oh, sorry, that's not... Okay, can, can you see? You can hear me, can you? Okay. Um, what do you think the size of Singapore relative to London is? Somebody there was I going to answer. I the answer to this, but I'm going to I actually... Please. Go on. Somebody guess from the audience. Well, Australia, Australia, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Lee Kuan Yew spent a month in LSE and decided that the city of London was too overwhelming for him. Um, and then he moved over to, to Cambridge. Um, but anyway, my point was really that um, quite often people talk about Singapore without realizing really how microscopic we are. Um, we are half the size of London, um, but we are a country, we are not just a city, uh, which means that we have to have everything that a country is required to do um, in terms of defense, um, security, resources, you know, having... Uh, in fact, we don't have sufficient water, but having water, electricity, and everything else. Um, which really brings me to the point about um, 
the reference to the possibility of having the Singapore model, which is one of the models that has been referred to uh, post-Brexit, which, as you can imagine, as a very small city-state, half the size of London, um, that is quite an overwhelming comparison. Uh, but nonetheless, going to the point that has been made by many of the previous speakers, um, the relationship with the UK is obviously a very historical one, uh, a one in which we in fact coincidentally two weeks ago uh, have marked it as our bicentennial, the 200th anniversary of the founding of modern Singapore by Sir Stamford Raffles. Uh, so it's to us a historical relationship. Uh, but one, if you actually look at the history of Singapore um, did not start with the landing of Sir Stanford Rifles 200 years ago, um, the, the myth um, that he founded modern Singapore. Uh, in fact, Singapore existed as it is now, um, as a hub in the trading routes from China to India, that's why you have the whole region called Indochina, um, for five centuries before that. Uh, and we did exactly what we do, connect um, the world with trade links, including to the Middle East. Um, but we did disappear for several centuries because China's trade closed up. Um, and we became a small fishing village uh, for a couple of centuries before Sir Sanford Raffles refounded us, plucked us back into the British Empire and in some ways created what it is Singapore today. Um, so the history that um, people talk about that reference to Singapore model is, of course, in my view, something that has come full circle. Um, what are the ingredients for Singapore success? Uh, it's really about the use of English language, um, the use of common law, the openness to trade and to immigration as well. Um, and some of these factors, some of these elements, some of these ingredients are beginning to be talked about. Uh, once again by, by the UK. Um, but one clarification that I thought I ought to make is that, well, we are all kind of high commissioners uh, and we are part of the Commonwealth. Uh, Singapore is a republic, um, so we do have a slightly different history perhaps compared to uh, my three colleagues uh, in the panel. Uh, and what we are trying to do um, as a republic in a part of the world in which we belong to, which is Southeast Asia, ASEAN, um, is to really build the opportunity for peace and security in the region such that we provide um, the basis for prosperity for, for our people but as, as well as people in, in our region. Um, so as a result of that history, clearly UK remains a very important historical partner. Um, but in many ways we have diversified um, our interactions with the rest of the world as well such that as much as Singapore is probably one of the most trade-dependent nations in the world, um, so trade is 300% our GDP. Uh, so when you talk about trade, it's literally our lifeline in Singapore. Uh, UK and Singapore actually does not have a very strong trading relationship. We are probably each other's about 20th largest trading partner. Um, and it is, UK is not one of our largest trading partners in the European Union as well. Um, so if you talk about the impact of trade, um, it's not going to be very significant if you just look at it from a bilateral context. But I think there are broader implications, some of which that have been referred to by my colleagues on the panel, um, that we, we can talk about later. But what is important in our relationship is actually the investment relationship. Um, we have obviously very important investment from UK companies in Singapore. 
Uh, and likewise, there are many Singapore companies um, that invested all across the UK, which is actually 10 times the size of our trade. Uh, so quite often when we talk about the free trade arrangement um, and how, for example, the EU-Singapore free trade arrangements need to be replicated uh, post-Brexit, what is an important element of the free trade arrangement that people quite often not talk about, which are tariffs, non-tariff barriers, is actually how do you promote uh, greater investment on both sides? How do you protect those investments? And that's, I think, quite an important component that we really need to look at seriously as we move um, to, a, to the post-Brexit arrangement. Um, so, so in that sense, from the Singapore's perspective, there are... Um, very, direct, very limited direct impact in our relationship post-Brexit. Uh, it certainly does not preoccupy us uh, in Singapore. When I was back home uh, recently for holidays, so as, as such, we are not really talking about work. Um, there was only one occasion in which we are, I was asked about Brexit. Um, what is the biggest preoccupation in our part of the world uh, is, Janice mentioned, um, they have a very large neighbour, uh, but in our part of the world, we also have a very large emerging power. Um, and both of them, her neighbour and our neighbour, uh, are going through a very difficult phase as well. Um, and the immediate you know, impact that will be felt between these two countries uh, will be felt in, in, in its immediate region, um, first and foremost, before it comes in some ways to Europe. Um, so in that sense, the much bigger challenge in our view, the much greater preoccupation uh, for us sitting in Asia is what is that new modus operandi, that new arrangement between uh, a status quo power and an emerging power will become? Um, and what do we need to work upon um, as Southeast Asian countries uh, collectively, which are becoming a community, not the same way as the European Union, uh, but nonetheless, uh, we have what we call ASEAN community now made out of 600 million people, population-wise larger than European Union. Um, its overall GDP is about 1.8 trillion, which is actually larger than India. Um, and in many ways, because we are integrating in the community, presents huge opportunities uh, for the UK. And that is one of the things that I think is a side benefit of Brexit. Um, as the UK look around for friends, is beginning to understand that it needs to engage uh, in a more concerted manner with countries in the region, including ASEAN, uh, which actually, again, a statistic that might surprise people, um, ASEAN collectively, made out of 10 countries, have actually attracted more inward investment than China uh, for the six, last six years. Uh, so ASEAN collectively is a very attractive uh, investment destination, uh, which I think in fact, for example, um, the United States actually invests more in ASEAN um, than Japan, China, and Korea put together. Um, so, so the huge opportunity which we think is, is starting to emerge, um, including Foreign Secretary Han's visit to Singapore early in the year, in which, amongst others, he announced um, the establishment of a dedicated mission to ASEAN in Jakarta, uh, is the huge opportunity that will come about. Um, so, so in terms of impact, I would say it's, it's, it's quite limited directly, but the broader concern from Singapore perspective um, is what is going to be the new challenge of our time uh, between US and China, but also challenges of technology, of disruptions, uh, of how 
each of our country need to prepare our own population uh, to deal with the severe disruptions, um, including um, destruction of jobs as a result of, of technology. And that is when the opportunity for us to work very closely with the UK um, to look at what you now call the modern industrial strategy, um, but that is something that we have been working on for many, many years um, in, you know, as we look at what is the, the niche advantage of Singapore, what's the comparative advantage of Singapore, how do we move our economy in order to take advantage of those uh, opportunities because of our size, but also our coherence uh, as a society. Um, those things are much more important for us in exchanging notes on how do you make your own economy more competitive, how do you ensure that your people are properly skilled in order to not be adversely affected, but in fact benefit from those opportunities uh, are much more important considerations that we, we need to take into account. And as Janice has mentioned as well, um, many of these would be dealt with uh, in terms of the collaboration that we will have between um, our scientists, our academic institutions, our businesses, um, and, and those have been expedited as a result of, of Brexit, um, despite the fact that the UK government has been um, fairly dis distracted. Um, so I will keep my comments quite brief since we come from a very small country and leave uh, <laughs> <laughs> the discussion um, in, in the Q&A later. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And then uh, last but distinctly not least, uh, Australian High Commissioner George Brennis. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, a lot of what I was going to say uh, has been covered by others and uh, there's really nothing I've heard from my colleagues that I would not agree with and uh, consider equally applicable to the case of Australia, but let me, let me make a few observations. The first observation I would wish to make to you is this. The most important feature of the relationship between the United Kingdom and Australia is not trade. In fact, our trade with the United Kingdom nowadays is surprisingly modest. 2.5% uh, of merchandised exports and 2.4% uh, of merchandise imports in 2016-17, somewhat larger figures for services. So the basis of the relationship between the Australian people and the British people is not primarily founded on trade. It is founded on the profound people-to-people -people links between the two countries. The fact that you are our second largest source of inbound tourism, for example. The fact that as the Australian High Commissioner in London, I can hardly ever begin a sentence before my interlocutor will say, oh, I've got a sister who lives in Sydney, or I've got a nephew who married a girl from Melbourne, or um, my son's doing a gap year in Perth, or, or whatever. So it's the people-to-people -people links that are the most profound and enduring source of the closeness of the relationship which we Australians feel are towards um, people from the United Kingdom. 
And of course, and others have touched on this, there is the fact that we share common values. All of the countries represented on the panel tonight share with the United Kingdom certain fundamental co common values based on uh, our adherence to liberal democratic philosophies, based on our support for the international rules-based order, uh, based on a desire to create societies in which prosperity is fairly shared among our peoples. So the traditions, the values, the, 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 the cultural attitudes which are embodied in Australian public policy and Australia's view of itself are values that we share with Britain. Nevertheless, as a, a nation which is a close friend and, like others on the panel tonight, have fought shoulder to shoulder with you literally in defence of your freedom throughout the 20th century, we are a concerned friend because we understand that your system is undergoing at the moment a very profound and uh, a very profound challenge and a time of great anxiety. And therefore, what Australia wants as a result of this process, wherever it ends and however it ends, is the best possible outcome for the British people. Now, as a matter of policy, we are entirely agnostic about the outcome, in the sense that we do not presume to lecture the United Kingdom on what is the best outcome for it. That is entirely a matter for the British political process to determine according to its own methods and systems. And obviously, uh, that remains, uh, there remain a number of contingencies. But what we do say to our British friends is this. Wherever this lands, whatever shape or form Brexit takes, it is a time of opportunity. Whether you are a person who voted to remain or a person who voted to leave, when Brexit occurs, there are opportunities to be seized by the United Kingdom arising from the fact that you will have a freer hand to determine your own trade policy. You have already, as the obverse of Brexit, embraced a new con a, a, a reconceptualisation of your foreign policy, badged as Global Britain, which reverses a half century of turning your back on the Eastern Hemisphere. This is a time for opportunities to be seized. But dwelling or dealing particularly with trade policy, this is not a time to be fearful of the opportunities for free trade. When you reflect on the long history of this country, it's hard to imagine any other nation in the history of mankind whose prosperity has been more 
immediately the product of global trade than the United Kingdom. And that opportunity is open to the United Kingdom once again. Reflect for a moment on the experience of Australia and perhaps by example we can be of assistance in demonstrating the benefits to the United Kingdom of having a freer hand in the world. When Britain in 1973 decided to join um, the EEC as it then was, trade between our two nations was, was, was the, the volume was immense. You were our biggest trading partner. Uh, regard, unlike the derisory figures I quoted before, um, you were responsible for 23.5% of our exports and 27.8% of our imports. And the opportunity to trade with you, particularly in agriculture, but in manufacturers, merchandise as well, services trade was not such a big feature of the trade between the two nations back in the 1970s. That was denied to Australia as it was denied to New Zealand as well. But Australia made the adjustment. And we went and we found new markets, particularly markets much more nearby to us, of course, in Asia, the fastest growing region of the world. And as a result, in, the year, in all the years since, but particularly in the last 30 years, Australia, the Australian experience has been one of harvesting the prosperity that free trade brings. We have been a voice for global free trade in the WTO and in other fora. And we have been extremely, an extremely enterprising negotiator of free trade agreements with the United States, with China, with Japan, with South Korea. We're entering into negotiate, uh, we've entered into negotiating a free trade agreement with the European Union. Most of those free trade agreements have been negotiated within the last decade, by the way, with this remarkable outcome that only six years ago, 26% of Australia's global trade enjoyed preferential access to markets under free trade agreements or preferential access agreements. Today, it is 70%. From 26% to 70% in six years. It's a remarkable outcome. This year, Australia will record its 28th consecutive year of economic growth. That is a record that has never been matched since statistics were recorded. Not exclusively, but to a large degree. That those three decades of economic prosperity have been the result of Australia's willingness to be one of the leading voices for free trade in the world, and particularly in the last decade, to break down the barriers by entering into free trade agreements with the largest economies on earth. The opportunity for the United Kingdom to emulate that success after Brexit 
is immense, particularly in the Eastern Hemisphere. About half of the global middle class, some three billion people, live in what I call the Eastern Hemisphere, what others call the Indo-Pacific region. By 2030, that will be two-thirds, some five billion people of the global middle class will live in the Indo-Pacific. And the opportunities are manifest for this country to once again have a, more, to have a much more significant global presence as a trading power, as historically you have always been. Now, let me close by speaking about the Australia-UK Free Trade Agreement. Both governments, the United Kingdom government and the government of Australia, have declared that they wish to conclude a free trade agreement as soon as such an agreement can be negotiated after Brexit occurs. The opportunities to expand the trade between our two countries are manifest as well, particularly in services, but in manufacturers, uh, in commodities as well. The week before last, Senator Birmingham, Simon Birmingham, the Australian Trade Minister, and Liam Fox met, and they rededicated themselves to concluding a high ambition, high value free trade agreement between Australia and the United Kingdom swiftly after Brexit. And I know that uh, that's something that, that New Zealand uh, is, um, is pursuing as well as it should. The opportunities are there to be grabbed. So my counsel is a friend but a friend from a nation who has prospered because of the benefits of global free trade, as Australia has done, is this. When Brexit occurs, be optimistic. Be aware of the opportunities presented to you. Of course, there will be costs. That was part of the deal when in 2016 the British people voted for Brexit. But it seems to me that there has been a little bit too much concentration in the public debate in Britain on the costs and an insufficient appreciation of the opportunities. When Brexit occurs, whether it's on the 29th of March or later down the path, the opportunities are there to be seized. Thank you. Okay, well, very good. And first, uh, just building on that last remark, um, I think it was from all of our High Commissioner visitors this evening, uh, uh, compared with many of the debates we have at the school about uh, Brexit, a bit more optimistic, so a little bit more sort of, you know, I just take three things and I'm going to open it straight up to the floor. One is that, so in addition to the, the optimism, the sense of global, the global element in uh, trade um, is clearly something that all the four countries here represented ha have embraced. 
Uh, second, uh, both Australia and New Zealand went through radical changes to their economies within the last 40 or 50 years, from which they appear to have emerged stronger. I mean, all four countries to some degree, Singapore, definitely a slightly longer time period. And then, but the one thing that does, that does sort of stick in my mind is that Britain is now moving to trade further away than its natural nearest neighbour. So Singapore and um, China and the other countries rapidly emerging in the immediate neighbourhood, Canada with its large neighbour next door, and Australia and New Zealand, of course, near this growing market we've just heard about. For the UK, quite a lot of that growth is quite a distant, ge distance geographically, is my... That's just a thought as a starting point. Anyway, enough from me. Um, but looking back the other way, it's a long way from where we live to here too. So That's true. That's a fair point. But, but, but you've built closer relations, I think, since in the last 20 or 30 years, 40 years, nearer by. Is that right? There, there are more trading links nearer to home. That's the point. Anyway, um, right. Now I take two or three questions. So can I have... A show of hands. Oh, there's people in the balcony as well. That's good. We'll make sure we come to you next, I promise. So two here. Um, lady here, gentleman behind, and then uh, a third. I'll take them in order, but take two though. Yeah, you and then in front and then over here. Sorry, I'll take you both so it doesn't matter which order you go. Uh, uh, George Ferguson. say who you are, it'd be nice, but don't feel you've got to. I'm George Ferguson. I am a former High Commissioner to New Zealand. Um, but not now in the civil service. Uh, when, as part of my job, like all your jobs, was to promote British um, exports and British uh, immigrant investment to Britain while I was in New Zealand, and there weren't many obstacles. Uh, there were obstacles to do with uh, biosecurity, which nobody, they're scientifically based, nobody's going to drop them just for political friendship. Uh, we had a problem about the geographical uh, <coughs> designation of Scotch whisky, which applied both to Australia and New Zealand, uh, who have a common whisky area. Uh, but other than that, uh, there were very few obstacles to British exports or investment. Uh, we, I'm, we've now got a, uh, briefly, a, a free trade area with, with Canada, uh, I'm interested in probing a wee bit further what uh, Mr. Brandis was challenging us on in looking at opportunities. Where are the opportunities in trade and investment with your four countries that we haven't had up till now or that are opening up to become uh, greater opportunities? Okay, and you could pass the... Thank you for your presentation. I'm Mickey, and I'm studying LSE. And you all mentioned that Britain can have a business opportunity even after Brexit, but in reality, many um, international companies are considering to and um, moving headquarters from London to other countries, other cities in Europe. So, uh, what do you think of this current situation? Okay, very good. And then there was a uh, that's right there. Hi, uh, I'm Liam. I'm a dual Australian New Zealand citizen studying over here. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the uh, positive cultural links between our countries and 
Britain, and there are many, but I grew up in uh, rural New Zealand, and there is still an um, enormous uh, memory, quite a bitter memory, of Britain joining the EEC amongst uh, the farming communities there. It, we've talked about the economic disruption. There was a real social and a political disruption, and to what extent does the memory of that very painful experience going to affect any new talks, um, the basis for trust going into uh, any new deals signed after Brexit? Well, that's a very specific question. I think it goes starts off straight to you, Sir Gary. <laughs> uh, yeah, OK, Liam. Um, and, and yes, it did. Um, and you will know, and, and, and many New Zealanders know, that you know, the, the, the collapse in the rural communities, so it wasn't just in farming, in the rural communities was horrendous. Um, and we all have memories of things that were, but s certainly my experience is that one thing that we would wish on the British people is that they don't experience the same thing as we did in the same way that we did. And that when you look at where we were in 1973 um, and you know, the, the level of support we had been giving to the UK uh, and where we are now and the level of um, activity that we have been able to generate because of that experience um, yeah, we've, we've learned well. In, in terms of trust, I think there's, um, yeah, there is a memory, but I don't think it, it affects trust, um, it, except that you know, we've had 40 years together with the likes of Australia in, in managing our own um, trade negotiations, so don't expect that it's going to be an easy ride. <laughs> Indeed, there is a New Zealander leading the UK's trade uh, negotiations, I think. He's a dual national. All right. <laughs> um, and what about... On the, uh, on the subject of um, opportunities, then there's the issue of the international company's headquarters moving. What about the, the real opportunities? I mean, there is a lot of trade with Canada, as you say, already. Well... Um, I think that uh, I'll start with uh, the make the point again about the free trade agreement. So the terms of trade uh, and goods and services between Canada and the UK is now covered, as you say, by the Canada-EU trade agreement. And both of our prime ministers have made a commitment to a seamless transition between a Canada-EU agreement and a Canada-UK agreement. That is very much a uh, meant to be a an agreement which replicates CETA, but on a bilateral basis. But I think our ambitions go further than that. I think that as two countries which are so like-minded, which uh, if the UK embraces the, the, the bold, ambitious, uh, optimistic orientation that, uh, that George has described, I think that we could, do, we could have an even more, uh, even more open and more comprehensive agreement between our countries. Um, and uh, we would look forward to that as quickly after, after the UK is able to negotiate free trade agreements on its own as, as possible. Um, I think, though, that we share a challenge, uh, and that is the challenge of taking a trade agreement and actually turning it into business opportunity. 
And uh, the, um, uh, the point here is that, uh, you know, geography is destiny. And so, so many Canadian businesses, you know, for them, the easiest markets are in North America. So we see a lot of trade density going into the United States and into Mexico. Canada is now the only G7 country that has a free trade agreement with every other G7 country, like Australia, like New Zealand. Um, Canada's future uh, uh, economic success and our prosperity depends on uh, access to, to external markets. And so we have to support our exporters in terms of actually uh, being able to um, operate effectively in those new markets, in those new markets where all those middle-class consumers uh, are. And so uh, the European market's important for us. It's easier for Canadians to come to the UK than further beyond, and I think that uh, that, uh, that our, our hope is to be able to deepen that um, and uh, to be able to attract investment from the UK, given that you can operate in Canada and access so many markets now uh, from Canada. But uh, we're very much in the business of trying to diversify our trade, and I suspect the UK may be in the same uh, in the same boat, and the other area where I think that we both have opportunity, and that is to get to underrepresented uh, groups who aren't currently participating in these export opportunities, whether it's uh, whether it's uh, uh, organizations that are led by women who tend to be underrepresented in the export business in Canada, Indigenous persons tend to be underrepresented, SMEs much less than than larger companies. And so how can we actually increase the trade, uh, the degree of, of trade uh, in our business community and that openness to foreign investment? Those are, those are skills and competencies that I think uh, uh, if we reinforce them, we'll provide additional opportunities between our countries. Okay. On the issue of the international headquarters fleeing, or some of them leaving, I don't know, about one or two going, is that something that I think your I mean, business people in Singapore and indeed Australia will notice or, or take much care of? Will they care much about that, or is it just a technical decision to keep trading within the EU? I, I mean, from Singapore's perspective, um, you know, where regional international or regional headquarters are cited, um, whether in the UK or they're moving somewhere else, is really the direct impact is on the UK. Um, but what we have seen is actually an increased um, input into the UK economy from Singapore companies, because many of our companies are not that large, uh, but not that small either. And we should not forget the UK in and by itself is still one of the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. Uh, and in and by itself, it is a sufficiently large domestic market. So many of our companies that are coming in uh, look at UK as an attractive domestic market, not necessarily as a gateway to the whole European Union. Um, so from that perspective, it remains a very attractive partly because of the drop in the sterling pound in more recent months, but from that perspective, uh, attractive location because you continue um, to offer a very predictable, a very welcoming environment. Um, so we have seen actually an uh, inflow of investment in the last couple of years rather than an outflow. Um, and on the trade question in terms of whether it's determined by geography, um, I think it actually is determined by the economic competitiveness uh, of your companies. Um, so I mentioned that UK is the fourth largest trading partner in the European Union for us. Um, so Germany, France, Netherlands are larger trading partners for Singapore. 
because many of their companies are competitive in exporting to our part of the world. So what, when we talk about the external trade policy, sometimes we forget that it's actually what you do within your own borders uh, in increasing the competitiveness of your economy, of your companies that are much more important than just talking about removing tariffs. Um, and if that can be done, um, and there has been work that has been done both at the national level as well as the regional level here in the UK, um, then you can better ensure that your exports, um, despite your geography, will be able to move to a fast-growing region in our part of the world. And I mentioned about Southeast Asia and ASEAN and what that middle-class market that some of our fellow panelists have, have spoken about. Um, and the branding of UK um, remains high in, in, in our region, and there's huge opportunities for UK companies to uh, make use of. Great. I'm trying to address the former ambassador's uh, question again about... Um, you said you talked about opportunities yourself, but I mean, um, I think the question is broadly, are there really, I mean, are the opportunities as good as you're suggesting they are? I think that's the, a paraphrase of the question. Well, I think generally the opportunities are terrific for this country, but in, in, in the Indo-Pacific, but specifically in relation to Australia, the direct answer to your question is the opportunities particularly lie in the services sector. Um, Minerals are Australia's largest export. Uh, the largest component of that is iron ore. Uh, we can't get enough iron ore out of the ground to meet the demand in North Asia. But the second largest export that Australia produces nowadays is educational services. And that is the, the services sector is where there really is the opportunity for growth without the issue of the transport costs that you've adverted to. So educational services, financial services, professional services, um, though that is the area where there is a lot of, op a lot of upside in the relationship between um, the British and the Australian economies. Got something here? Just actually on, uh, on George's point, um, one of the things that we hear most often from Canadian businesses about uh, opportunities here in the UK, particularly in light of the Brexit debate, is actually about access to skilled talent. And so I would say that in a world where services are a growing component of, uh, of our trading relationship, the focus on the mobility of labor and the ability of skilled labor of companies to be able to bring <coughs> people uh, and, uh, and attract talent is a really important consideration in competitiveness in a way that I think uh, um, is going to be more, have more determination of uh, a future success than, than we might have thought of in the past. And of course, one of the many things the UK government hasn't yet sorted out is its long-term migration policy. Right. Now, uh, I'd like uh, some, yeah, some hands up in the list to the balcony. It's be a bit more short and sharp this time, possibly. Yep. Nice to have some female questioners as well from down here. Please, go on. Uh, my name's Chris Larkman from Wimbledon. I want to ask the panellists how they would have voted in 2016. <laughs> um, if they had a vote, of course, whether to remain or leave. Well, they're diplomats. They'll be diplomatic about answering that. Okay. Gentleman here. 
Hi, my name's Sanjoy Mukherjee-Richardson. I'm a joint New Zealand-UK national from Scotland. Um, question I have um, for the panel is, you have or are in the process of agreeing free trade agreements with the EU. With a UK free trade agreement, what else would you be looking for? Is there anything else in addition to uh, what you're negotiating or what you already have? Good question, especially so much Canada Plus features a lot in negotiations. And I'm going to I'll come back to you because I'm going to take young lady there, please. Hi, I'm Erica. I'm a Canadian doing my master's at the LSE. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and I've heard some rumors coming out of Canada and other places that uh, post-Brexit there might be um, sort of work towards more visa-free access among Commonwealth countries or increased mobility that goes beyond existing youth mobility arrangements. Uh, do you think this is a realistic possibility or kind of wishful thinking from people like me? <laughs> Very good. Okay, the poor person who was waiting... Yeah, go on. Give him a question as well. We'll do four this time. Get the microphone. Sorry. Wait your patience. Hi. Um, my name is Cedar. I'm an MSc student here. Um, so uh, all of you uh, seem to express the view that you wanted more trade with uh, the UK. Um, but um, my uh, thought was that if trade is diverted from uh, Europe to countries that are further away, say, um, your countries, um, then that if those the, if the trade that is diverted is uh, physical goods, um, then that might cause more greenhouse gas emissions, which is something that um, you uh, that was also brought up as a serious issue. Um, so my um, uh, question is whether or not you think that there is any tension there. Okay, well, so we're going to run up to eight o'clock. Is there any more desperate question we haven't picked up so far? Yeah, one in the middle, and then I'm afraid we'll have to come back to the panel. Go on. In the, you had your hand up in the middle there. Yep. Uh, hello. Uh, I come from the Japanese embassy. Uh, my name is Takagi. Uh, my question is that uh, how do you think about the trade continuity agreement uh, a few days ago? Uh, Chile, fellow islands, and uh, South and East Africa signed. Uh, is it solved the problem in the event of no deal Brexit? And uh, is it a realistic option for us? Yeah. These are sort of follow-on deals in the, yeah. in the event yeah. of no yeah. deal, yeah. I think. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. And the Faroe Islands, I think, featured on that list as well. <laughs> Wonderful place. Uh, indeed. So um, let's do it in reverse order this time. Don't just pick up those points as you... Well, let me address the, the gentleman from, from Scotland. <laughs> um, so Australia um, has an, uh, settled a negotiating mandate for our um, EU free trade agreement negotiation uh, last year, uh, and it is ambitious in scope. Um, we are in the preliminary stages of a scope... A, 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 we are in the a preliminary discussion with the United Kingdom about uh, an FTA because under the uh, EU rules, a withdrawing state can't embark upon negotiations uh, until the implementation period post-withdrawal has commenced. So um, in those circumstances, I'm not, in, I'm not going to specify how much more broad in scope um, UK-Australia FTA will be other than to say 
that we are ambitious for it to be as wide as possible. I mean, it, it has been the history of Australia's negotiation of free trade agreements, whether with America, whether with China, whether with Japan, whether with the EU, that we try to make them as broad in scope as possible. And there are always, as you know, there are always carve-outs, whether it's in the pharmaceutical sector, whether it's intellectual property protection, whether it's artificial intelligence, whatever. Um, but our ambition is to have as few carve-outs as possible. I'm not pretending that the Australia-UK FTA will be identical to the Australia-EU FTA. And at this stage of, the neg uh, of negotiations in being with the EU and yet to commence with the UK, that it's even possible to say. Any or choose any of the ones, any of the questions you'd like well, to address. I mean, tell us how you'd have voted if you really like. <laughs> well, uh, I'll talk about um, the Singapore-EU free trade agreement that has just been signed um, and is in the process of being ratified. So we are in quite an interesting situation, unlike other countries of Australia and New Zealand, which are only starting their negotiations in the EU, or Canada, which already has an existing free trade agreement with the EU. Um, ours is still in the process being ratified. There is a high-level political commitment uh, that should it be ratified, it will be rolled over through a continuity arrangements with the UK bilaterally. Um, but what had happened with our negotiations with the EU is that it took actually several years, including a very complicated bureaucratic process, uh, for it to be put towards the final signature and ratification process, including subjecting it to the European Court of Justice as well. Um, so we are very familiar with that um, complicated European Union processes and not unsympathetic to certain points of views here. Um, and because that took such a long time, as much as it's a very high ambition, um, high standard free trade agreement, we think that given the time that has passed, in some ways it's already the free trade arrangement of yesterday. Uh, and at some stage we need to talk about a free trade agreement of the future, uh, which is one that involves the digital economy of e-commerce, um, in which there are many new areas of rules uh, that have been yet to be written. They have many different preferences um, in Asia, in Europe, in America. Uh, and there's a lot of work, including at the WTO, in which we need to work with a country like the UK, because most of your exports will indeed be about um, services, including electronically. Um, and, and these are the rules that we will have to contribute to jointly writing for the future. Great. These are free access, I think. Well placed to answer that. Um, I can tell you that, uh, as, uh, as uh, the professor said, uh, the UK has not come forward with its migration policy yet, and we're all waiting to see what that will look like. Uh, we have not been party to discussions yet with the UK government about this. I've heard this rumor as well about visa-free Commonwealth and so on. I think uh, perhaps uh, my Australian friend has been more in direct contact. I think you mentioned a little bit about whether or not there would be some some preferential arrangement. Uh, at this point in time, I have no, I, I can't confirm that. Um, I would tell you, though, that, um, as I said earlier, about the importance of labor mobility for service, in particular relationship to services, that uh, that Canada and the, in the Canada-EU trade agreement, there is a labor mobility provision. That's also a feature of the CPTPP. Uh, and there's a provision, similar provision in the, in the new, uh, Canada-US-Mexico agreement. 
Um, and so um, that's one way to try and get at this point. But I think, as I don't have to tell you, Canada is a country that uh, very much tries to encourage migration, both temporary movements as well as permanent movements. And so this is something that we'd, very, we'd be very keen on, on chatting with the, uh, with the UK about. Very good. Um, can I, can I, can I the greenhouse gases question? No, I don't want to answer that one. You don't want to answer that one? <laughs> um, but, I, but I will, Cedar. I will. Um, just in terms of you know, how optimistic can, can we be, um, the UK is our fifth largest trading partner. Um, and by you know, global amounts, it's, it's not a lot. But, you know, it's the fifth largest trading partner. We've got free trade agreements. We've got a very exclusive arrangement with, with Australia called the uh, Common uh, Economic Relationship. Uh, and, you know, that's hugely comprehensive about how we, how we can do our business. Uh, we've got a free trade agreement with uh, all of these countries um, through the CPTPP uh, and, and, and otherwise. Um, and so for us, we just imagine what it would be like if it was a level playing field and that there were no tariffs, no, no barriers to people doing trade. So that's, that's the, the first point. And, and you know, trade, yes, you know, there, is a, there is a tension between... Um, you know how you know trade and how you generate trade and how you um, move it from uh, one side of the the globe to the other, um, but that's that's what I call an opportunity playing hard to get, um, because it's not only about products and goods, uh, as my my co-panelists have said. You know there are a number of other things in terms of services. You know in Services for New Zealand out of the UK, tourism is one of our largest export earners. Uh, and that's tourism both in New Zealand, to New Zealand from, from here, but um, from elsewhere. So yes, there is a, yes, there is a tension. Um, yes, you know, we've got to deal with it. And yes, you know, brilliant young minds like yours have got to help us to do that. Because you know, I, I mentioned in, in my comments you know, climate change is, it seems to me, the challenge for all of us into the future. And it's not just one piece of these strands that will uh, create the solution. Um, the solution will be multifaceted and it will be multilateral in how we deal with it. Great. Well, we're going to have to finish here, I'm afraid. We've... Uh reached eight o'clock and I just want to say to apart from thanking our panel which I'll do in a second one or two things to um, summarize first thing I think I'd like to say is that um, we've heard a lot about risks but also about opportunities in in balance this evening which I think is uh, uh, encouraging second I think we heard a lot from all four speakers from the countries represented about the importance of the rule of law soft power and the international system, didn't mention any other countries, even incidentally, really, but uh, all the countries here represented are um, strong proponents of rules-based systems and 
um, you know, broadly attempting in the complexities of the modern world to do the right thing out there. So I think that's important. I think we've bumped up at the end about migration policy. It's not unique <coughs> to these countries and the United Kingdom. The whole world now has an issue of how to handle migration, various different ways, skilled migration, people leaving war zones and so on and so on, big international issue that's just going to continue to grow. Um, but last but not least, um, as I said by implication a moment ago, a degree of optimism, uh, which, which is good. Now, I noticed nobody uh, answered the question about voting, in who, well, you demanded in the referendum, and I'm not going to ask it. These are diplomats, and uh, I think it's uh, only polite not to ask you. But I would, one thing I would have asked, but I'm not going to ask myself, actually, is um, given how important the so-called Northern Ireland backstop is and the question of how borders can be made open and free, certainly Singapore and Canada have borders that, uh, in a sense, if they are to be... If, if, if the um, Northern Ireland island border can be made as open and max fact as some politicians hope, I assume it's going to have all sorts of implications for countries outside Europe trading thereafter, but uh, we'll wait and see on that one. So I didn't want to ask you about that. So, so what I will now do, however, is thank the High Commissioners from Australia, Singapore, Canada, New Zealand, our friends, for coming here this evening, for interacting so engagingly with us all. And um, thank you all for coming. And we'll doubtless see you here at many future events. So thank you for coming and good night.